The Scripture calls us to let our light shine before men. It tells us that in the New Testament. It tells that in the Old Testament as well. And that's where we find ourselves today as we continue studying God's Word. If you'll go ahead and turn, if you haven't already, to Genesis 18. As we have come to Genesis, we've seen how Abraham is one that God has called to be a light to the nations. And we've seen how he struggled to do that at times. And as we continue through the biblical narrative, we'll see how God uses him in that way. So if you'll turn to Genesis 18, as you turn there, I just want to remind you that uh, this Sunday evening, all of our activities resume, our kids club resumes, we'll have something available for everyone tonight at 6, and so we invite you to all come back. I also need to let you know, a note I was given, uh, there was a uh, Young at Heart outing on Tuesday this week, but due to some illnesses and other things in families, that has been canceled. So if you're planning on going with the Young at Heart group on Tuesday, that event has been canceled. So if you'll make note of that. Uh, Genesis chapter 18 is where we find ourselves, and we're going to continue in the text by picking up in verse 16. Now, if you weren't with us, just so you know what's happening here, uh, God has made a promise to Abraham that he's going to bless him. And this blessing was going to come through a child named Isaac that Abraham and his wife Sarah would have. So basically what you see from Genesis 12 to Genesis 18 is, is Abraham's struggle, his struggle to trust God, to believe God, Ultimately, his struggle to walk in faith. He wrestles with walking by sight. And we've talked a lot about those two things. And where we pick up today is in the middle of an encounter that Abraham has had with some visitors. Initially, they appeared to be three visitors. We find as we study the text that these visitors were indeed the Lord himself along with two angels. And as they've had a conversation where the Lord has promised and reiterated his promise to Abraham that a child would be born named Isaac. Uh, how, now there's a transition in the text where something is going to occur with Sodom and Gomorrah. Now we'll get to more of that as we get into Genesis 19, but as I mentioned in our ch- church newsletter a few weeks ago, parents, I want you to read ahead and know what's coming, especially in Genesis 19, because uh, there are some very wicked things that take place there that we'll be touching on and preaching through, and I want you to be aware of those ahead of time for any <coughs> conversations you may need to have involving those things. So, with that said, Genesis chapter 18, beginning in verse 16. This is what God's Word says to us. Then the men set out from there, and they looked toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. So that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there, and they went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away that the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous spares the wicked. 
far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes, suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. And again he spoke to him and said, Suppose there are forty found there. And he answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. And then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry. I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. And he said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. And he answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. And he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry. And I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way. And when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. If you would pray with us for our time in God's word. Sovereign God, I do ask as we come to you in Jesus' name that you would do a work among us today. Lord, I am aware today as I am every time I step behind this pulpit that we live as a distracted people, that there is much on the hearts and minds of the people here today. There is much to distract them. There is much to worry them. There is much to make them anxious. For some, Lord, they will drift off perhaps they already have and yet Lord this is your word that you have spoken to us for a purpose and a reason and so Lord I pray that it would go out today that it would be received and God that you would do a mighty work among us that you would transform us into the image of your son Christ Jesus it's in his name that we pray amen one of the ongoing Debates that my wife and I have had is who is the better driver? DMV would say she is. I've had a number of incidents that help me understand I'm not as good a driver as Sandy. I've managed to run into many things. I've ran into parked cars, I've ran into moving cars, I've run into cars from the front, from the side, from the back. I actually once managed to get in her car and back it up. In such a way and at such a speed that I nearly totaled my car with her car. Which was parked in the driveway. But but the one that I was probably the most concerned about the consequence was a car that I almost hit but didn't. A number of years ago when I was in Bowling Green, I was getting onto the parkway and I was not paying as much attention as I should have. And I, I came literally within inches of pulling into a car and almost hitting it. And it was a state trooper who was not at all pleased with this. In fact, uh, after that, with the way this road was set up, we, I actually was pulling into a toll booth. And so I had to sit there and, and wait to pay the toll as I nervously kept looking in the rearview mirror. And I'm glad I don't know what he said, but he was not very happy at all. And he basically said, you need to pull over. And then some other things, I'm sure. So I pulled over after the toll booth, and he let me know that we would need, I would need to make a court appearance. I remember that day I went to court, 
And I'm sure none of you in here have ever gone to court. So let me explain what happens. You, you go and you sit and you wait to be called. And while you're waiting, it can be quite entertaining because you get to watch everything that's going on in all these other cases. And so I had no idea how long it would be. Or, uh, you know, I brought a book because I thought I'd be good and read. Uh, but I found myself very soon putting the book down because I was watching reality TV just take place in front of me. But, but here's something I noticed on that particular day with this particular judge. It seemed that no one was guilty of anything. Uh, person after person that stood in front of the judge, he, he would essentially, in so many words, tell them, well, this was wrong, and then he would say, don't do it again, and then he would move on to the next case. There was no consequence that was given to anyone. And so by the time I got before him, I was rather encouraged to think, well, maybe I won't get in trouble for this. And sure enough, I, he asked me what happened, and I told him, and he said, well, that wasn't very smart, was it? I said, no, no, it wasn't. Are you going to do it again? No, 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 I won't do it again. Okay, and let me go on. I was very thankful that I didn't get in trouble, but as I left that day, I had this conflict in me just thinking, something's off about this. Now, as much as I appreciate it, and I'm sure those other people appreciated not getting a consequence for their action, we really should have all gotten consequences for our actions. See, while we appreciated the judge letting us off and not giving us a consequence, that judge wasn't being a very good judge. Judges who never pass judgment aren't very good judges. And sadly, that's how many of us want to see or do see God. We see Him as a God who we know in the Scripture is indeed a judge, but we want to think of Him as a judge who never really judges and so we find ourselves saying of those who have no faith in christ have no repentance in their life their life looks nothing like that of what the scripture calls us to be we find ourselves saying well i'm sure they'll be okay because they're real they're really good person they, they really try and we have this picture we we think that somehow they're going to stand before god and god's going to say well did you do something wrong well, don't do it again, and, and, and you're okay. And yet, that is very far, friends, from the picture we see of God in the Scripture. See, God is not a judge who never judges. God is a judge who indeed does bring justice. And we see an example of that as we walk through Genesis 18. And I pray that as we see the justice of God in this text, that we might be compelled to believe that God truly is just, that God's wrath truly will come. And that there are many that we love and that we see on a daily basis who as of today, they will fall under the wrath of God. I pray that God would break our hearts for them as we walk through this text. we we'll begin with point one there in your notes. We see in this text that the Lord is a righteous judge who does indeed punish the wicked. And this text we followed as these visitors have come to Abraham and now in verse 16 it says the men set out from there to look towards Sodom what we know of Sodom so far in the text is that Sodom is a wicked place uh, we first see Sodom mentioned when we see that whole encounter with Noah's son Ham if you remember that uh, Ham does not regard his father does not do well by his father and so Noah curses Ham specifically he curses Ham's son, Canaan. 
And then we read in the text in Genesis 10 that the Canaanites, essentially, they're, they're wicked people from that point forward in the Scripture. They're under this, this curse. And they settle. And one of the areas they settled in was Sodom and Gomorrah. So the, the first thing we see about Sodom and Gomorrah is it's filled with wicked people. It's filled with the Canaanites. You continue on and you get to this point in Genesis 13 that if you've been here, you'll remember uh, Abraham had this decision. He and Lot were farming the same area of land. And they had so much livestock between them that the land couldn't support both of their uh, livelihoods, their livestock, and their servants. And so they had to make a decision. Who's going to take what part of the land? And so Lot makes a decision completely based on sight. He looks and sees the land that reminds him of Egypt that's just uh, literally just flowing and, and, and luxurious. This is the, the land he wants based on what he sees. And so that's the land he decides to go after. But we read in that text that what that does is it takes him right up to the edge of Sodom. And we're reminded in Genesis chapter 13, even in that text, that the men of Sodom were wicked. They were great sinners against the Lord. The next thing we see of Sodom is in the next chapter, Genesis 14, where Lot and his family are taken captive in the midst of this, this war between all these kings. And Abraham goes to rescue Lot. But in the process of doing that, he also rescues uh, some people from Sodom and Gomorrah and, and has this exchange with their king where really the king of Sodom wants to gain from all this and kind of make a deal where Abraham will owe him. Abraham's wise and doesn't enter into that deal. So what we see from Sodom is it's a wicked place. It's ruled by wicked people. And then we get to Genesis 18 and that wickedness is confirmed because now the Lord is going to deal with the wickedness of Sodom. We're reminded in this text of the special relationship that Abraham and the Lord have. You'll remember as we've studied that Abraham is one who's considered a friend of God. And so there's this exchange where God is talking about revealing his plans to Abraham. Now, why would he do that? Because he was in a relationship with Abraham, and he was going to bless the nations through Abraham. It's interesting because as you follow through the text, you see that's the exact kind of relationship we can have with God through Christ Jesus. One in which God reveals his plans to us. He's done that through his word. One in which we too are called a friend of God. We're reminded of this. We're also reminded of who the Lord is. That the Lord is righteous and the Lord is just. Psalmist says it this way in Psalm 119. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. Ask yourself this question. Have you ever felt in any area of life that there was an unfair rule? Uh, there's something going on and you see a rule and you say, you know what, that is not fair. The, the Scripture helps us to understand that any rule, any law that is initiated by God is always fair because God is always right. Now, we are not always right. Perhaps some of us think we're always right, but we're not. Perhaps you've been in a scenario where either you or someone with you was convinced they were right in regards to where they were going. They refused to listen to the GPS or the map or anything else because they were convinced, I know where I am going. I know exactly where I'm going. And maybe you were seeing signs that said, warning, dead end, and vicious alligators ahead or whatever else. And they're still saying, no, I know exactly where I'm going. This is the right way. And they say that up until the point of the dead end. 
when they realized, I was so convinced this was the right way, and then they realized, well, wait, this, this was the wrong way. Friends, that, that's exactly how many of us go through life. We go through life convinced that we're doing the right thing. We don't just go through life openly rebelling and I'm going to sin against God. So many of us, we go through life and we are just convinced we're right. You know what the scripture says of that? It says no matter how convinced you are that you are right, if you are wrong, you are wrong. And there's a consequence of that. We read in Proverbs chapter 14, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Friends, we we don't even know what right is apart from God and His Word. But fortunately, He reveals this to us because it's part of who He is. The Scripture also tells us that He is just. God is not that picture of the judge who never passes judgment. God is just in what He does. And so when God passes judgment... There's no court TV deciding, well, was this right or this wrong? There's no protest. There's no appeal. God is just. And what he decides in his righteousness and justice is what indeed will come to fruition. Because this is who the Lord is. The scripture tells us here then that this, our righteous, just God is going to respond to Sodom and Gomorrah because he has heard outcries. We don't know exactly what that means, that he's heard outcries. We don't know that it means that there are people in Sodom and Gomorrah who are crying out to God. The text would kind of indicate that's probably not the case because there's not righteous people, not many righteous people found in Sodom. I think it probably has more to do with what you read in Genesis chapter 4. If you remember Genesis 4, you have Cain and Abel, and Cain has killed his brother Abel. And the Lord comes to Cain and he says, The blood of your brother cries out against you there's a sense here where the gravity of our sin the consequence of our sin cries out to the lord and so here the lord is going to come to sodom and gomorrah now note god's not coming the lord's not doing this because he doesn't know what's going on Uh, this is what we see for example when the lord comes into the garden and he says adam what have you done he knows exactly what adam's done When he comes to Abraham and says, uh, where is Sarah, your wife? He knows exactly where Sarah, Abraham's wife, is. And here too, he knows exactly what's taking place in Sodom and Gomorrah. And God then is going to deal with that. Now, Now, here's the good news. God will bring justice. That, that's good news. For those of us who look at situations and we just cry out, Lord, will, will there ever be justice served? who get frustrated when justice is not served, there, there is a greater justice than our legal system affords. And God says, there will be justice for the wicked. Now here's the bad news. Apart from Christ, every one of us is wicked. And so God will indeed bring justice. And we seem to like that when it's justice on someone else. <laughs> well, we don't like it when that justice is on us. Even as children, we really enjoy getting others in trouble. We don't enjoy it when we're the one who gets in trouble. Well, the Scripture paints a much broader picture of that and says that we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory, and therefore the righteous judge will judge us. But there is good news, and the good news is this, point to the Lord is a gracious Redeemer who saves His people. The Lord is a gracious Redeemer who saves His people. You see that as you follow this passage and you see these men, these angels going down towards Sodom. But notice what happens. 
in verse 22, the Lord stays there and stands before the Lord. There's this special relationship again that Abraham and the Lord have. And so as these angels move forward toward Sodom and toward what they're going to do, the Lord stays here with Abraham because they're going to have this conversation, this intercession that Abraham's going to have. He begins it with a question in verse 23. He says, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Here's a question. Who is righteous in Sodom? (laughs) And everything we've read about Sodom and Gomorrah in the text up to this point would indicate there's really not any righteousness there. And yet Abraham doesn't come to God and just say, God, hold back your wrath. God, don't destroy Sodom. Abraham specifically says, Lord, are you going to wipe out the righteous with the wicked? Who's righteous in Sodom? We know that Abraham is considered righteous at this point because God says that. He said very specifically that Abraham believed, he was a believer, and the Lord then considered him righteous. He, he, He deemed him righteous because he was a believer. He's made righteous. There's somebody else that we see in this text that is righteous. And that's Lot. We don't tend to think of Lot as a very righteous person, but as you move ahead to the New Testament and you come to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, you find Peter referring to Lot as saying, Righteous Lot. Now, that's the term he used to describe Lot. In fact, he's wrestling with the same question that Abraham was wrestling with. He's saying, Will the Lord destroy the righteous with the wicked. And he speaks of how the Lord did not destroy righteous Lot. And so we can see from this that God has done something in Lot's life as he did in Abraham's life. We know that the Lord said he would bless those who blessed Abraham. We know that Lot was part of Abraham's family. So somewhere in this process, Lot has been deemed righteous as well. But I want you to notice something about Lot. Peter also tells us that Lot is tormented Because he is surrounded by sin day in and day out. See, the question is not, was Lot saved by grace? The Scripture helps us to see. Both Abraham and Lot were saved by grace. But the Scripture also helps us to see something very different about these two men. While Abraham is walking in faith and growing in his righteousness before the Lord and moving further and further and further away from sin, you see Lot moving closer and closer and closer to sin. And so for us today, this is very practical because the question is, can can we be saved? Can we be a Christian and yet live in the midst of sin and even participate in that sin and move further and further and further in our sin and still be saved and the scripture would say absolutely is that where you want to be absolutely not you think about the consequent in lot's life lot's about to lose a lot of things lot's about to lose even his wife lot's about to have everything That when he was standing there with Abraham and considering all his stuff and how he's going to go to this land, he's going to have more stuff. Lot's about to lose all of that. Lot's about to experience the devastating devastating consequences of sin in his family's life. 
Is that where you want to be? Absolutely not. But friends, that is where it's very easy for us to be. See, the question as you come to this is not whether or not Lot is saved. It's once he was, what did he do with that? It's the same question for you and I this morning. I was listening recently to a series of sermons on this text by Scottish pastor Eric Alexander. And he made this point. He said, one of these men took God seriously and the other did not. Now think about what that means to take God seriously. You may hear people say, and Alexander makes this point, that we kind of use that to describe people that we consider a bit on the fanatic end. You know, that, well, they just kind of take God way too seriously. Uh, yeah, I know, Joe. Joe Joe's, he's one of those guys that sure takes this stuff seriously, doesn't he? Friend, that's exactly how the Scripture calls us to take this stuff. We are called to take God and His Word very seriously. And there are devastating consequences when we don't. You see Him, for example, in Lot's life. He didn't seem to take the Lord very seriously. And so when He finally does, in the midst of this sinful place, the text tells us in Genesis 19, He goes to His household, which in His household He had His future son-in-laws. And the text tells us He goes to them to say, okay, God's judgment is coming. And they don't respond by saying, we don't believe you. They don't respond really in rebellion. You know how they respond? They think that Lot's telling a joke. They think that he is jesting, that he is joking. Why would they think that about Lot? It's probably an indicator because Lot didn't take his faith very seriously. And when you and I don't take God very seriously, people don't take us very seriously when we speak about God. And so perhaps you leave church one Sunday and you're under conviction, I just need to talk to this person about God. And you do, but up to that point, you've not taken God very seriously in your life. They usually don't take you very seriously either. Now friends, that doesn't mean we have to be perfect to share the gospel at all. And that doesn't mean that you shouldn't leave this place if you haven't taken God seriously and not share for that reason. But what it does mean is this. There are serious implications from God's word when it comes to how seriously we take our walk with the Lord. And we are called to take it very seriously. And as we do that, there's an effect of it. And we see it in the last point I've put here in your notes. One of the effects is that the hearts of redeemed people then should be and are broken for lost people. As you take God's word seriously and you realize that He is a God who is righteous and who brings justice, then that should have an effect on you and me. Because then we should consider the eternity of those around us. Those who don't know Christ. See, it's comfortable for us to believe that God's going to make some alternative plan for them. Or that if you really tried hard and you really tried to be a good person, you're going to be okay. But God's Word has told us otherwise. It says that we've all sinned and we fall short of God's glory says that the wages of our sin then is death, that we deserve eternal separation from, life, from God. But it tells us we can know God through Christ Jesus, through repentance and through faith. And if we take God's word seriously, then that's a message we should take out to others. And we should be burdened for the lost. And I think that burden is what you see in part here with Abraham. We have this sort of unusual exchange that goes on between Abraham 
and God. It almost seems like a bartering process where Abraham says, well, if you find 50 people, will you spare the city? What if you find 45? What if you find, and he keeps going down in numbers. I don't think there's so much a bartering going on here. I think in one sense what we're seeing is that even as Abraham asked the Lord for these things, he is becoming more and more aware of the wickedness of Sodom. Even as he asks for it, he realizes it's probably not there. Well, Lord, what if there's 50 people that are righteous in Sodom? I mean, why would he even ask for that to begin with? Abraham's got a relationship with Sodom, not only because Lot's there, but think about Abraham goes into battle to save Lot, ends up rescuing all these people from Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham has a personal connection probably with some of these people. And he is asking the Lord to spare the city for the sake of the righteous. But as he asks for that, he's becoming more and more aware that that's not a reality. That there's not 50 there that are righteous. That there's not 45 there that are righteous. And on and on and on until he gets down to 10. Lord, what if there's 10 righteous people here? It's interesting because as you follow Jewish history from this point, the minimum number of Israelites needed to start a synagogue moving forward in history was 10 people based on this passage. And 10 doesn't sound like very many. And yet we know there's not even 10 in Sodom. The the wickedness of Sodom and the consequence of sin is one point, but, but I hope you'll see the other point here. Abraham is crying out to God to hold back his wrath from these people. See, Abraham doesn't need a sermon on the justice and the righteousness of God. Abraham knows it. Abraham would have been taught and would have learned over the years about looking back in history and seeing how God had interacted and seeing how wickedness had gotten so great that God had brought a flood and wiped out wickedness. He would have seen what God had done with wickedness, how he truly is a just God and he's a right God. And so Abraham knows if God's going to bring his justice down on Sodom, there's not going to be a Sodom left. And so how does Abraham respond? He doesn't pray, Lord, help me get a few people out first. He prays, Lord, would you hold back your wrath from this city? Have you ever prayed that for your city? Have you ever prayed that for anybody? God, would you let them live just a little longer so that I might share the gospel with them that they might know life? Have you ever come to terms with the justice of God and the righteousness of God in such a way that you understand that you and I, we we deserve God's wrath? And we deserve punishment for our sin. But by the grace of God through Christ, He's given us righteousness instead. But as you realize that, you also realize there are so many people that you know and that I know who are lost. They're lost. And they are separated from God. And they rightly deserve the judgment and the wrath of God. Do you realize that? I'm not just kind of coming up with this to try to convince you of something. If I were coming up with this, I would far rather come up with, oh, it's going to be okay. 
they're going to be all right. Let's wrap things up so we can get first in line for lunch. Thanks for coming. That's not what the scripture says. And I'm accountable to it and you are. And what it says is that we rightly deserve hell for our sin. But it makes the cross that much more beautiful. Because Christ on the cross paid the debt for our sin that we might find life in Him. And that we might cry out to God as Abraham cried out to God, God, would you just, would you just hold your wrath back a little longer? See, I encounter people all the time who say something to me like, you know, Pastor, I've seen the news and I just can't imagine how much worse it's going to be before Jesus comes back. I just, I just wish Jesus would come back today. And I understand that. There, there's an aspect that we should hope Jesus comes back today. I don't think I've ever had someone say to me, Pastor, I'm praying that God holds His wrath back just a little longer because I've got so many friends and family who don't know the Lord. And I know if He comes back today, Pastor, they're, they're going to go to hell. And I don't want them to go to hell. And so I, I'm asking, Pastor, that, that God will hold His wrath back just a little while longer that they might know the Lord. See, I think that's how Genesis 18 would have us pray today. But I think we don't so often because we're just busy doing other stuff. <laughs> you know? Got kids club tonight. Got lunch plans. Got stuff to do. School's back. Got this and that and this and that and this and that. And we're just so distracted and we're so busy that we don't consider the reality that there are people around us that will go to hell and that God would have us share the gospel with them. Let me close with this. Hudson Taylor was a missionary that you may be familiar with. He was a missionary to China in the late 1800s, one of the first missionaries to China. And like many missionaries in his day, he just went and he spent the rest of his life in China sharing the gospel with people who didn't know the Lord and on one occasion, he later recounted how he was on a boat. And on this boat, he was having a conversation with a young Chinaman about the Lord. And he was sharing the gospel with him. And he was, he was pleading with him to repent and have faith in Christ. This young man, just he wasn't ready. And he told Hudson that. And he, he said he would think about it, but he just wasn't ready. And so they concluded their conversation. And Taylor went down below to, to get his things ready because they were going to be porting soon. And... As he was packing up his suitcase, he, he heard a lot of commotion and he went back up to the ship's deck only to find that this young man he had been talking to had fallen overboard. Hudson later recounted he, he was overwhelmed with the reality that this young man was not a Christian and that this young man would die and in moments of his death would face what the writer of Hebrews tells us. It is appointed once for a man to die, and after that comes judgment. What Romans tells us, that the wages of sin is death. We rightly deserve separation from God. And Taylor was overwhelmed by this, so he jumped off the boat and began going deep into the water to try to find this young man and pull him to the surface that he might live and hear and respond to the gospel. 
He searched and he searched. In the murky water, he could not find this young man. Precious time was escaping. And so he came to the surface. And as he did, he saw a fishing boat nearby, right there by him with nets. And he immediately thought, they can drop their nets. They can rescue this man. So he called out to the men, drop your nets. There's a man drowning. Drop your nets. Their response was, well, that's not convenient. And so they began to tell him, we, we have a job to do, we don't have time for that. And he just yelled out, drop your nets, drop your nets. And so they began to haggle with him. And he said, I'll pay you. And in his day and age, $5 was a huge amount of money. I'll give you $5 to just drop your nets. Then they haggled, they wanted more money. Hudson finally said, I will give you everything I have if you will drop your nets to rescue this dying man. And so immediately they dropped their nets in the water. And Taylor said within seconds, they pulled this body to the surface. But it was too late. He was lifeless. Lungs were full of water. He was dead. Taylor later spoke about how frustrated, how angry he was that here were these men who had the opportunity to save this man's life, ultimately that he might receive eternal life. But they just were too busy and they didn't want to be inconvenienced to stop and save a dying man. And he said within moments of his anger came the awareness from the Lord that that was the church of his day. And friends, I believe that's the church of our day too. It is inconvenient. It is costly. You may risk your reputation, your friendship. You may have to go without to send people to the nations, to go to the nations. And so we just don't because it's not convenient. We don't talk to people about the reality of their eternity because we're scared they might think, we're just a little too serious about this. Friends, the reality is, while we stand here this morning, there are people out there drowning. And the reality is, we've got the nets. We've got the gospel. The reality is, as we take that gospel out, God does the work and He draws people to life through Christ. And so my prayer for you and me this morning is this, that God might so burden us as he burdened Abraham to intercede for the people of Sodom. And that God, before you leave this place this morning, would burden you and I with a face, with a name, with someone out there who is lost and separated from him. And that he would use you and I to take the message of the gospel to them that they might find life in Christ. If you would pray that with me right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, I pray for all of us this morning. I pray in these moments where it's very easy for our minds to be distracted. Perhaps we've been distracted. We're thinking about other things. It's easy for our minds to start thinking about lunch plans and day plans and what's going on this week. And Father, I pray that you would, through the work of your Spirit, overwhelm us right now and burden us with faces, with names of lost people in our community, in our homes, in our families, in the places we work, in the areas that we live in, perhaps people we encounter every day in our day-to-day -day life, 
Lord, would you so overwhelm us and burden us to drop the nets, to share the love of Christ with them, to reach out to them, to invite them to church, to share our testimony, to share God's word with them. Lord, would you burden us? Lord, would you convict us of our apathy, our failure to be serious about you? And Lord, would you use that conviction to drive us to share the gospel with a lost and dying world? We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.